listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Wow, what an incredible time of worship. It is Memorial Day weekend, and a lot of people, this is the start of summer, but it also is a time where we reflect on those who have gone on before us, those who have fought bravely for our country, and and we celebrate freedom because of their great sacrifice, but it's just also a day of remembrance. And and, and I think that as as we're thinking not only of those who have gone on before us in, in death, but we want to think about those who are gone on before us in sharing the gospel. We want to continue to be praying for our missionaries around the world. You know, as difficult as it may be for us here in America, imagine if you were out and you've taken your family and you're in a different country with maybe greater uh, restrictions and serving the Lord. So we want to be praying for all of our missionaries around the world, especially those in North Africa and the Middle East, those who are proclaiming Christ uh, to a group of people uh, that are just in great spiritual darkness. Well, uh, we are looking forward to June 7th for that regathering time, and, and we're just a couple of weeks away, but we're continuing in the book of Esther, so I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Esther chapter 4. And this is probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in the entire book. Uh, and so Esther chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse number 10. The Bible says, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You know, there are, there's typically uh, a part in every great story where the uh, protagonist, the, the hero, realizes the situation and then seizes their moment to act. These moments, these pivotal moments in their life are, are those opportunities that change the trajectory of their story, of their arc, of that hero forever. So if you think of some great stories like uh, The Hobbit and, and you think of Bilbo Baggins, who was the Hobbit of the Shire, he, in that one pivotal moment, leaves the Shire and follows Gandalf the Grey to be the burglar in the quest at Urbor. Or if you think of 
Star Wars and you think of Luke Skywalker and as he finds uh, who he is and, and seizes his moment as he is on his X-Wing and he makes that one shot that, that goes and, and destroys the Death Star and, and it was a, a shot in a, in a million, in a billion, but he makes it. And in that moment, he seized his, his, his moment and, and regardless of how he risked his life. Or, or think of the, the great theological movie Frozen where you have Anna who in an act of love runs to save her sister, Elsa, and in doing so, she turns into ice. Those were those pivotal moments in in those movies and in those stories where they seize their moment. Well, here in chapter 4, Esther and Mordecai are seizing their moment. They are risking everything to save God's people. Last week when we were in chapter 3, we saw that things seemed to be very hopeless for God's people. It seemed that that in the midst of of the chaos and in the midst of this uh, diabolical plan of Haman, that that, that there was no hope and, and that God was nowhere to be found. You know, one of the interesting things of the book of Esther is that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book. But as we have dived deeper each week, we see that His fingerprints are everywhere. This morning, we're learning that, that God is at work in the world. And even though we can't see it, He's at work. He's doing things. He's moving pieces. And the question is, how are we going to respond to it? Are we going to seize our moment? Are, are we going to place our life in, in the hands of the God that we cannot see? And so in chapter 4, we're going to see that there's an uncomfortable decision for Esther that turns to an unshakable determination that leads to an unbelievable deliverance for God's people. So let's look here. The first point, an uncomfortable decision. In verses 1 and following, we didn't read this, but what we find out is that Mordecai has now learned what's happened. He learns about the diabolical plan. News has now traveled all throughout Susa and the empire. Bad news always travels fast. That the Jews are going to be annihilated through the final solution enacted by Haman 11 months from that day. Mordecai, when he hears this word, he tears his clothes, a sign of deep mourning. He puts sackcloth on and ashes, a time that just shows deep despair and deep uh, crying. Normally, uh, biblically, prayer was involved in this, but the writer here is intentionally leaving that point out. But yet here what we see is that he makes his way to the king's gate. Now, just to give you a little bit of frame of reference, the the king's gate here was not the gate of the city. It was the gate to the palace. Uh, In the city of Susa, this would be on the western hill, about 120 feet above everybody else, what would be called the Acropolis, which would be the the high part of the town. It would be the city of the city. It would be a city within a city. It would be the citadel. And it would be the residence of government officials. I've been in northern Iraq, and I've been to Erbil. And in Erbil, they have this citadel that's just like this. It's, It's the high place in the town. And right there would be the king's gate. And if you lived inside the, king, the king's gate, this is like a gated community, uh, it would be the pinnacle of society. And so Mordecai, who's a very law-abiding citizen, doesn't go inside the king's gate because the Bible tells us that it was against the law for anyone to come in the city in sackcloth. You had to be in there. If you're going to be in the city of the city, you had to be happy. You couldn't be mourning. You couldn't be drawing attention to yourself. And so he's right outside the gate. And the reason why he's right outside of the gate is he wanted to get Esther's attention. He wanted for her to intervene. He was looking here for a political solution. So in verses 4 through 8, Mordecai is out there in the gate trying to get people's attention. 
and and he and he's successful. There there there's these little news helicopters going around him. He's now trending on Twitter. People are word is getting out, and Esther hears about this, and so her response is, "Well, Mordecai's dressing like a crazy man. Let's send him some new clothes." That was her solution. He wanted she wanted to cover him up and to keep him from making a scene. But when she sends the new threads. He rejects them. He doesn't accept them because he doesn't want to be shut up. So Esther is going to send her trusted guard to go find out exactly what is going on. And so in that moment, Mordecai tells him everything. He tells them about the, the decree. Uh, he tells them about the sum of money. Uh, he even has a copy of this decree so that she can see what's going on. Now, I think this is interesting. Esther is the queen, but she's a queen in isolation. She's completely insulated from what's going on in society. She's married to a pagan man. She's broken God's law and fully embraced the culture of the palace. And she's oblivious. She's absolutely oblivious to what is going on and the danger that her people were in. She was just living the real housewives of Susa. I mean, that was, was kind of her lifestyle. She forgets that she was a Jew and that she is one of God's people. She's living in law-law land unconcerned and unmoved by this ultimate reality that her people, which includes her, are poised to be annihilated. So Mordecai, if you read the text, commands Esther to go to the king to beg for favor and to plead on behalf of her people. Now, she's his uh, adopted daughter. uh, And in the past, if you remember chapter 2, verse 20, she obeyed him. And he asked her to beg and plead. Now, when you read that in the Bible, that is a language that's typically used towards God, that you beg and plead for mercy from God. Well, here, that is directed towards Xerxes. So Mordecai is seeking a political solution to fix the problem. Mordecai is a fixer. Most men typically tend to be fixers. Women tend to sometimes be fixers. For me, like I'll give you an example. Uh, when, when I come home from work and, and April tells me about her day and she tells me this problem and that problem, I'll listen to her problem and then immediately I'll give her 17 ways to fix her problem. When I start telling her how to fix the problem, she doesn't really want me to tell her how to fix the problem. She just wants me to listen to her. Well, I'm a fixer, so I'm trying to fix the problem. Well, here, Mordecai is trying to fix the situation in his own strength and through his own ingenuity. So in verse 11, Esther is going to give her response. Mordecai said, go to the king, beg and plead, and save your people. So Esther's response is this. Listen. You know, Mordecai, you are a public official that no one can go to the king without being summoned. If you remember what happened to Vashti, Vashti defied the king's order. Uh, She stood up against Xerxes, and guess what happened to her? She's no longer queen. And also, I'm reading between the lines here, but I'm no longer the king's favorite anymore. I haven't been with this king in 30 days. And the king doesn't sleep alone. So he's probably moved on past me. And if I go unto him uninvited, I could lose everything. This was a very uncomfortable decision she had to make. See, because she's tried for these past three or four years to fit in. She's embraced the, the evil empire. And she has basically told nobody her identity that she is Hadassah the Jew. And so if she goes before the king, she would be outing herself. She would be exposing to everyone who she really was. But yet, if she doesn't do something, if she doesn't say something, then her adopted dad and all of her people would die. So in verse number 11, 
she in this moment isn't refusing Mordecai. She's just asking Mordecai to rethink this thing. Essentially, she's saying, is there, is there another way? Is there something else that I can do? Because I can't do this. I've not been summoned to the king. And, and if I come before the king and he, accept, he, he rejects me and doesn't accept me, I could lose my life. I could lose the palace. I could lose everything. You have no idea how hard I have worked, the compromises I have made to do this. What you're asking me to do is impossible. Her first response when asked to make a stand for God's people was fear. You know, here's what fear says. Fear says, I can't. Fear says, it won't work. Fear says, I will be rejected. Fear says, there is no way. Fear says, I will lose it all if I do that. Fear says, play it safe. Fear says, let's pretend it doesn't exist and maybe it will go away. And her response to this uncomfortable decision was fear. But now we're going to see an unshakable determination. Mordecai is going to give a response. In verses 12 and 13, Mordecai is going to give a very famous response. It is the trademark speech of the book. And essentially, he's saying to her, don't get too comfortable, Esther. You are still a Jew. You can try to act like you're not, but you're still a Jew, and your fate is intertwined with your people. And if they die, you die. And so he's saying here, essentially, if you risk and you go and stand before the king, you might lose everything. But if you don't risk, you will lose everything. If all the Jews are killed, you will be found out. Don't think you can go into hiding. You will be found out and you will be killed. And let's say, let's say that they are not killed. You're still going to be found out as a traitor to your own people. It is a lose-lose situation. Do not think if you keep silent that this is going to all work out and there's going to be a happy ending. So he says in verse 14, if you keep silent though, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's amazing how Mordecai's attitude and his demeanor has changed. Mordecai is a man who's no longer putting his trust in a strategic political solution. He's no longer putting all of his trust in Esther. He is putting his hope in God alone. He is trusting in the unseen hand of God's providence based on God's promises that he was never going to abandon his people. He clings to the hope of deliverance even without any idea of how God was going to bring it about. That's what faith looks like. Faith is seen here in Mordecai because Mordecai has absolutely no idea how God was going to deliver his people. But yet Mordecai refuses to believe that God will break his promises. And so in this moment, he is saying, Esther, God's going to provide a way. I'm giving up control. I'm giving up any illusion of control. And I'm trusting God because there is no plan B other than God. Here you see his determination that even if you do not do anything, Esther, God's going to do something. And so he goes to this next phrase that many people have, have heard. And he says this, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That word come is in the passive tense. For those of you Hebrew scholars, it's in the hifal stem. And, and it is basically, this word come could also be translated to be brought. Who knows whether you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, do you not understand, Esther, 
that where you are and all that you have is because God has put you where you are? That every bit of this is grace. You might think it was your beauty. You might think it was your charm. You might think that it was your hard work and your talents that got you to where you are. But if you step back, the reason you are where you are is because of God. This is your opportunity, Esther. See, unless you and I use the opportunities we've been given to serve God's kingdom with them, we're imprisoned to those opportunities. See, if you can't risk what God has given you to be used for God, then you are a slave to what God has given you. Let let me give you an example. If you have a good job and you make a comfortable living, but you can't radically be generous with your money, you can't give a tithe to the church, you can't help others that are poor and are need, if you can't give of your money, then you are a slave to your money. That job and, and the money that you have is a tool, but you have made it your master. See, God put Esther in the palace for this very reason. But if she was unwilling to risk the palace to save God's people, then she was really a prisoner to the palace. See, if you can't risk and leverage the opportunities that God has given you, where He has given you for His kingdom, then you are a slave to those opportunities. You have a divinely appointed role in the kingdom of God and you have been sovereignly shaped to fill that role and you will never feel like you've found your purpose in life until you do. See, the people that God has put in your life, the place where you live, the platform you have been given, the profession that you serve in, the passions that you have and the provisions that you've been entrusted with are all meant to fulfill the purposes of God in your life. You know, I think about our church, I think about myself Uh, You know, we're not the most impressive and we're not the wealthiest people in the world. But we are here in this moment in time and our God has rigged the system so that the Great Commission could come to completion through us. All that God wants to do in Sanford and Central Florida and the nations through us, He has already put into our hands. All He wants from us is our availability. Your best ability is your availability because you and I have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. As we think about what's going on through the the situation in our world with COVID-19, Don't be, God has uniquely placed us where we are, our church in our location with the resources and the tools and the people to meet the needs of our day and to expand his kingdom where we are. This is our time. And so Mordecai is saying to Esther, as I think God is saying to us, do you want to be in God's story of great deliverance or not? If you don't, if you don't want to be a part of what God is doing in the nations, if you don't want to be a part of God's great deliverance, God's going to do it a different way. Mordecai says to Esther, I know and I understand what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking you to do is scary. It's risky. But listen, you were put in this position to make a very uncomfortable decision, but the choice is yours. Do you want to be used by God in this moment or not? And that's what God is saying to you. Do you want to be used by Him in this moment to fulfill your God-given destiny, your God-given role, your God-given purposes, or are you going to cower in fear? Well, what was Esther's response in verse 15? 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. He sa- she says, gather every Jew in Susa. I'm going to have a fast. They need to have a fast. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. If I lose the palace, I lose the palace. If I'm going to die, I might as well die serving God and saving His people. She is willing to risk it all. But I want you to notice something. Notice that what she asked for is she asked for all of the people of God to pray for her. I need you to pray for me, she says. You know, in this moment, this is the first time that we know in Esther's life that she is living in such a way that if God doesn't show up, she will perish. That's a great place to live. That if God doesn't show up in your life, you're not going to make it. See, I want you to think about this. She does not have a prophetic vision. She does not have a scripture to claim. She's not seen a miracle. There is no guarantee of her safety. In this moment, she steps out in faith. She in this moment is determined to identify with God's people, to stand up and speak truth to power and stand for life. Esther goes from being a woman who is trafficked against her will, marrying a pagan king and embracing the wicked culture around her, to now being a woman of God standing in the confidence of God. That question, that statement from Mordecai put purpose in her position and put purpose in her suffering. Many of us will not know in advance the significance that our circumstances and decisions that we make, we're not necessarily going to know how God is going to work in in those moments, but we do know that our actions and decisions in that moment are significant, and we can know that there is purpose to where God has placed us to advance the kingdom of God. What I want you to understand with me is this, church. Safety in this world is an illusion. Many of us are trying to do everything we can to keep ourselves as safe as possible, but that's an illusion. None of us can guarantee our safety. None of us are able to hold on to our lives. None of us have real control over our lives. God does. And so because of that, we need to leverage everything that we have for His kingdom and advance His kingdom and not our own. I love what Jim Elliott said. Jim Elliott said this. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's where we are. And that's what we need is this unshakable determination that we're gonna, we're gonna give it all. We're gonna leave it all out on the field. We're gonna leverage our time, our resources, our talents, our money, and our passions to further His kingdom. And if we die, we die. And that's a great place to be. Well, this leads to the third point, and that's an unbelievable deliverance. But we're gonna kind of fast forward. To chapter 5. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out 
to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Think about that. There was the moment. The moment that for three days and three nights she had had the entire Jewish population of the city of Susa praying for, that she and her and her women in attendance had been praying for, had been fasting for. And there it was, Esther enters into the into the throne room, and the king raises his scepter, and she wins favor in his sight. He's a pagan king. He is only caring about exterior and appearances. It's not about love. And yet what we see here is the woman still got it. And so he asked, what what do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And as you read the text, here's what Esther is going to say. He's going to say, honey, what I want to do is I want to have a banquet in your honor. And I want you to invite your best friend forever, Haman, to come and join you. And so as you read chapter 5, they have this first banquet. And that first banquet was a success. It was wonderful food. But Esther doesn't say anything about her people. Doesn't ask the king anything. She's slow playing. But at the end of the first banquet, she's going to invite the king and Haman to come back the next day for a second banquet. Now, as the story goes along, and we don't have time to read it, but you can read it, that Haman, who now thinks he's like the, he's like the awesomest guy in the world, uh, because he's been invited by the queen to a royal banquet, not one day, but two days in a row. And so he's on his way back to his house, and while he's there kind of strutting down the main street, He sees Mordecai the Jew. And remember, everybody was supposed to bow to Haman, but instead, Mordecai the Jew continues and stands defiantly. Well, Haman sees Mordecai the Jew, and he is madder than a mosquito in a mannequin factory. He is so upset, so aggravated. And so he tells his servants to make gallows that night that are 75 feet high because he's going to have Mordecai the Jew hanged. Well, as you fast forward even more to chapter 7... They're now in that second banquet. Esther is talking to Xerxes and to Haman. And and in this moment, Esther tells the plan that Haman had to annihilate her people. And Xerxes says, whose idea was that to kill your people? And she says, it's that dude. It's, It's Haman. And Xerxes hears this and he feels such great betrayal. He He walks out of the room angry. Haman is now scared out of his mind because the most powerful man in the world is angry at him and is and is probably going to kill him. And so he begs for Esther's mercy. He, he begs for help. And as he's lunging towards Esther, he grabs a hold of her arm and he falls onto her. And in that moment, the king walks in and he says, dude, you want to kill her people. Now you're trying to rape her. Now you're trying to have your way with her. Dude, you're dead. Those gallows you built for Mordecai the Jew, you're going to get. And in that moment, it was over. Now there's more to the story that we're going to get to next week. But see that. This unbelievable deliverance where her fears and uncertainty, what was going to happen, God worked together to bring about good, to bring deliverance for God's people. Well, how did that happen? It happened because Esther identified with her people. Esther risked her spot in the palace. She she risked her life to intercede for God's people, and God used her to save the day. It was an unbelievable turn of events. But the purpose of this story, and the purpose of this book, is not to just point our attention to Esther and say, all right, be like Esther. 
Be courageous, be bold, share your faith, take a stand. Yes, you can sin and make bad decisions, but God can still use you. Those truths are real, but that's not the point of this book because if Esther is your example and you have to be like her and you have to risk your life for her, that may crush you. See, Esther is a shadow, a signpost to a greater Savior. See, God created us. And because He created us, we, hope, we owe Him everything. We are called to love Him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We are called to worship Him alone. But instead of worshiping God, instead of loving God, we love ourselves. And we live only for ourselves. And, be, and the result of that is that there is a great gap, a great division, a chasm between us and God. And the distance between us and God is beyond our ability to bridge on our own. We need a mediator. See, Esther here is going to save her people by doing two things. She's going to save her people through identification and through mediation. See, when Esther outed herself as a Jew, she identified with her people and came under their condemnation as a Jew by the king's order. But because she identified with her people, she can mediate to the king on their behalf. So her position as queen gave her the ability to go before the throne and beg and plead for mercy and favor from the king on behalf of her people. And her favor in the eyes of the king is what won favor for her people. Her identification led to her mediation, which led to their deliverance. Well, Jesus saves his people, saves us by doing the same two things. Jesus left the palace. He left the palace of heaven with all the beauty and glory and splendor. And he identified with his people. Philippians chapter 2 says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And in coming to this earth and in taking upon flesh and blood and, and taking upon himself the form of a servant, he took our condemnation based on the justice of God. And so when Jesus came, when he identified with us, he took our condemnation on himself. He didn't just risk his life like Esther did, but he gave his life. Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, but when I perish, I perish. And Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin and win the favor of God for people who deserve an eternal death sentence. And now Jesus, through mediation, through His death on the cross, stands as our mediator between us and God. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not a person, not a preacher, not a priest, not a parent can get you to God. Only Jesus can get you to God. He has secured the victory. We cannot save ourselves and nor can anyone else save us. And that's the point of the story of Esther, is that we need a mediator. We need a Savior. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, if you see Esther as your example, it will crush you because you'll never be able to measure up. But if you see Jesus as your Savior, it will set you free. See, Esther did what she did based on her limited understanding of the grace of God. But we know infinitely more about God's grace because of Jesus. 
See, because of Jesus, we know the end of the story. Because of Jesus, we know that God wins. We know that God's people are ultimately and eternally saved. We know that they're that the things of this world are going to pass away. The things that we cling to are not going to last. They're temporary. We know because of Jesus that there's a better day coming, that there's a true and ultimate deliverance that is coming for God's people because of Jesus. And because of that, it changes how we view everything. This week, one of the great giants of our day, Ravi Zacharias, went to be with the Lord at the age of 74. For many of us and for me, Ravi was an inspiration. Uh, It has been said, someone said that Billy Graham is the great evangelist of our day and Ravi Zacharias the great apologist. He was a man of great faith and he was a man that leveraged his life to share the gospel with millions and millions of people. Well, in a recent message, here's what he said. He said, Jesus reminded us that death can be the valley on the way to the mountain. And he says, that's why we preach Jesus. The tears are real, but his promises, but but Jesus promises that he will wipe away all those tears. He promises that our eyes will see the reality that we can only dream about. That's the ultimate deliverance of God. And it's because of that, because we already know of the ultimate deliverance of God, we know how the end of the story goes. It's because of this that we can risk and leverage our lives our money, our time, our jobs, our positions, our platform, and everything that we have to advance His kingdom. We have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. This is our moment. We don't have to worry that if we stand before the King that He'll reject us. Because of Jesus, we know the King accepts us. We don't have to worry about if we lose the palace that we lose everything because we know that God in Jesus Christ has gone before us to prepare us a mansion. And we know that if He goes before us, He will come again and take us to Himself that where He is, there we may also be. And that if we die, we die. But it's just a shadow. It's just a valley that leads to the mountain. And that one day, all those tears are going to be dried up and all those problems are going to go away. That everything sad is going to become untrue. So if we have those precious promises, promises that Esther did not have, then we should leverage our our lives to advance His kingdom. I want to reiterate the words of Jim Elliot in which he says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool to give up all the things in this world if it means to advance the kingdom of God because you can't lose that. So my hope is, is that we don't just be like Esther but that we trust in a Savior. We trust in Jesus. And because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because He lives, I know, I know, He holds my future. And life is worth the living because He lives. So what I want to do right now is give you an opportunity to not just embrace Esther as an example, but to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can have that hope that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. That hope is found in Jesus. It comes by acknowledging that you're a sinner and by trusting your life to Him. 
So I'm going to pray in this moment, and I'm going to pray for you, church family, those of you that have trusted Jesus, that you would give your life in mission, leverage it all to further His kingdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray for everyone who's listening to the message today, those that are watching, those that are listening through radio or other means. God, I pray that you would help us all to see that because of Jesus, we don't have to fear risking because we don't really risk trusting in you. That God, we can leverage our lives. We can, we can live our lives with whatever the cost is to further your kingdom. But God, I also pray for those who, have, who in this moment say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. That maybe they would pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have not lived up to your standards, that there's a great gap between you and me. But God, I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And I ask that you be my Savior, my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. See, you can be bold. You can be courageous because of Jesus, because you know the future is certain. If you've made a decision to trust Christ today, we want to hear about it. If you made a decision, you want to take the next step of baptism. If you want to say, I, I want to surrender my life to be on mission for Jesus. I want to be a missionary. Maybe you want someone to help you think through that and pray through that. Or maybe you say, I just need somebody to pray with me. Well, we want to encourage you to contact us. And the best way to do that is through texting us to this number, 407-338-4024. That's 407 407- 338-4024. You text to us your decision and let us know and we'll get back with you as soon as we can. I pray that God will take His Word and make us more like Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next steps, visit us online at centralsanford.net.